I'm uh, David Flint, and this is Save the Nation on ADH-TV. My guest today is the very distinguished Vice President of the Rule of Law Institute and uh, noted commentator on all sorts of legal matters, Chris Merritt. Welcome, Chris, and thank you for being with us. Hi, David. Chris, just could you remind us, because it's so important, could you remind us what the Rule of Law is? Uh, there, are, there have been books, multiple books written about the rule of law, so uh, forgive me if I uh, condense it a little bit, but the, the bottom line is the rule of law is a set of principles intended to, be a, uh, to provide a bulwark uh, against arbitrary rule, um, to, to hold the, the state in check, to hold those who hold state power in check, to ensure that they exercise... Um, uh, their power, uh, make their laws in accordance with a set of principles that are designed to protect uh, individual liberty. Very important in in this country, uh, which doesn't have a, uh, a constitutionalised uh, Bill of Rights, the principles of the rule of law, uh, many would argue, are actually superior uh, to what's written down on various charters. They've they originate uh, all the way back in 1215 in the Magna Carta. Uh, the, the principles have evolved over time. But that's the beginning of the, the fundamental idea that those who govern us are subject to the law, uh, just the same as everybody else. Before that, uh, there was uh, significant debate about this. Um, about whether uh, everybody except those who governed us uh, were subject to the law. But that, that's the origin and that's, uh, uh, that's, that's what it's all about. And in these days, it's, it's very, very important to uh, hold uh, parliaments, uh, ministers, prime ministers, uh, judges even, uh, to account, to, to ensure that they adhere to those principles. Yes, the the, uh, the famous distinction is made, isn't it, between the rule of men and the rule of law. And I think one of the best examples of where you didn't have the rule of law was uh, in communist Russia under Stalin mm. and his chief of uh, the secret police, Lavrenti Beria, mm. famously said, show me the man and I'll show you the crime. In other words, you just name who you want to get he would then convict him of a, any crime that he thought appropriate. And that, that was, that's what happens in dictatorships. It's wonderful, isn't it, that in Australia, from the settlement itself, within a very short period of the settlement in New South Wales by Governor Phillip, we had a case, a civil law case, Cable and Sinclair, Mm. where two convicts brought a, an action for the theft of their properties against one of the captains of one of the ships. And it mm. was heard in uh, New South Wales, I suppose in a tent, by Collins, David Collins, mm. and uh, damages were awarded, were they not, for the loss of that. He found yes. that, the, that the, obviously the captain had stolen it and misappropriated it, and they got damages. Yes, exactly. Look, it's a, it's a wonderful case. 
the the principle that jumps out at you from that is the fact that when people waded ashore at Sydney Cove in 1788, uh, they had this invisible cargo of uh, principles, not just the rule of law, but all the constitutional development that had taken place um, in England uh, since 1215. That all came ashore. That was all part of the package, and that's all part of the inheritance, um, the legal inheritance, constitutional inheritance, actually, that... Uh, provides the foundation for this country. It's uh, frequently forgotten, but the High Court has recognised that the, the Constitution is based on an assumption that the rule of law pervades in this country. And it's not, it's not just um, the, the principles of uh, uh, 1215. There are significant uh, constitutional developments in Britain, the Act of Settlement, um, the, the British Bill of Rights, uh, the, the glorious revolution, really. Um, all that is part of our inheritance. And even though this country is uh, entirely independent of Britain and has been for some time, it would be a terrible mistake to ignore that inheritance. The Americans don't ignore it. The Americans celebrate the fact that they are the beneficiaries of Magna Carta the American, the American Bar Association actually is responsible for erecting a monument at Runnymede, the field at Runnymede, where, where the charter was sealed by uh, King John and, and his rebellious nobles. The Americans did that, a completely independent republic. And isn't it extraordinary that uh, although New South Wales was to be a penal colony, just within a very short period, of the settlers arriving, here you have two convicts being allowed to sue. It was interesting that Collins ignored the rule that uh, convicts couldn't sue. Yes, it, it is remarkable. Um, he must well, have known the rule. It, it, look, the, the, um, there are, there's been books written about how the uh, freedom in, in, in this country, uh, democracy in this country, um, grew out of the rule of law. It was not the other way around. It wasn't democracy first and then the rule of law. It was first the principles of the rule of law. Uh, and they, the democracy could not be denied by uh, a population that insisted on their rights um, and their rights at the time as Englishmen. Um, it's completely different now, of course, but those rights are still present and still part of our inheritance. And more people need to take account of them and stand up for them rather than simply accept uh, passively uh, the erosion of principles that have been 800 years in the making. And that's why the institute of which you're vice president is so important, because it celebrates the rule of law, but it also has a major educational role, does it not, in the schools and yes. uh, universities? Yes, look, my, my task of making trouble for people who infringe the, <laughs> the rule of law, that's, that's only one part of what we do. We, we, we employ teachers. Uh, we provide uh, educational materials for, for schools. Uh, we take um, uh, guided tours uh, through some of the courts of New South Wales um, and some of the, um, the judges, particularly the uh, district court judges, are enthusiastic about this because the more young people learn about 
the civic education, and they need this. They need this desperately in a time when uh, rights and liberties are under attack like, like never before, in my view, anyway. If the uh, High Court has, as it has, as the High Court has found that there is a freedom, an implied freedom of political speech, Surely one day the High Court will find that there is, in, there is an implied rule of law which applies in Australia. Interesting. It's an interesting point. I'm, I'm very uneasy about anything being implied. Um, some things, yes, uh, uh, I, can, I can agree with that. But the rule of law, I think it doesn't need to be... Uh, its status is more than an implication. It's the basis of, of uh, the Constitution in this country. So implications, I think their status is probably not as secure as the uh, pre-existing status of the rule of law. Um, Im implications are effectively uh, are controlled by the judiciary and can be defined recognised or, or simply left to wither on, on the, the vine. We've seen that with the, uh, the very little development that's taken place in the in, implied uh, freedom to, uh, for political communication. It's, uh, it's being argued a lot, um, uh, uh, but rarely, as I'm aware of, rarely uh, of much impact. Mm -hmm. When uh, that case that was brought by a former New Zealand Prime Minister against the ABC over freedom of political speech came to the High Court, I persuaded the Press Council, I was chairing the Press Council at the time, to put in an amicus curiae brief. And the High Court allowed us to present that to the full court. Mm -hmm. uh, we were arguing that uh, this should be a defence. It should remain a, an individual defence. As you know, they, they ruled against that and decided that it was a restriction on legislation, on the power to make legislation, rather than as a, an open defence for everybody. But it was a very interesting yeah. experience. Look, it was, uh, at the time, I remember it quite clearly. I thought a window had opened and we were uh, about to head down the path of... Uh, uh, the, the American Bill of Rights, uh, where the, the Americans, uh, American government, as American governments, are uh, not permitted to make laws that infringe uh, the freedom of communication, mm. uh, freedom of the press, as it was uh, described at the time. And that's where I thought we were going. But uh, subsequent cases uh, closed that window pretty sharply, I'm afraid. Yes. <laughs> the uh, cause of some regret. Yes. I got the impression that uh, the dissenters and those who wanted to keep it uh, all got together. These are the judges, and they compromised among themselves because it was a unanimous judgment. And I think uh, mm. the, uh, <laughs> effectively a deal was done. We will keep this, but we'll keep it just as a restriction on legislators rather than uh, a right for all citizens. But uh, that's the way uh, yeah. these things work. But uh, I would have thought that uh, if, if there was an impl if there's if there's an implication in the constitution that we have responsible government, that is, governments are formed in the lower mm -hmm. house 
by the mm. by the government having a, the confidence of the lower house, and that's not in written expressly in the constitution, but it's uh, is presumed because of the financial provisions. Surely, we, yeah. or surely the whole the, the founders obviously assumed that the rule of law would continue, and the whole basis exactly. of the constitution is on the rule of law. Surely, I would have thought. Yes. So the, look, I, I agree entirely. That's what the Rule of Law Institute will have to do in the appropriate case. You'll have to file an amicus curiae, there's a friend of the court brief, to make your position very clear. Yes, okay. I don't rule that out at all. Um, we, we have considered um, a number of um, adventures like that, uh, and I feel sure it's only a matter of time before we choose the right case. We've had discussions with a number of like-minded organisations about how to go about this, and the... Um, uh, the consensus is basically um, you've got to be ruthless. There's so many worthwhile cases uh, out there. Uh, uh, you've got to be very, very selective. This is mm. how the American equivalent groups operate. Um, they don't run everything. Nobody can afford, no institution, um, uh, private institution like ours, can afford to uh, run every case that they see has merit but um, the way the American um, equivalent institutes operate is they go over these cases quite carefully and pick one every now and then and, and go for it. And the, the record, uh, so they tell me, is, is pretty good. In, in that uh, one where the press council filed the amicus curiae brief, we decided we wouldn't be employing uh, counsel because it wasn't necessary just to present a brief. I did it myself. Mm -hmm. I wasn't then, I'd, I had no longer had a practising certificate because I wasn't practising, I was purely an academic at the time, but they allowed me and it was an interesting experience, but at least they took it and listened to it. George Williams, there was no arrangement between us, but George Williams did a similar thing, though he had a silk with him. Uh, for the Media and Arts Alliance, which, of course, had much more money, I'm sure, than the Press Council. Yeah. Well, that... You know, it's, it's, it's good that these things happen. It's, it's good that uh, our civil society uh, puts its hand up in, and argues these cases before the courts, just to enliven the fact that uh, we live in a free society and people should stand up. Instit institutions, civil institutions, should stand up and argue their cases before those who govern us. I, th I think you're absolutely right. We mustn't be silent when these things happen, which brings us to the voice, because uh, mm. th there is a question there. What, what the, there's a, the voice is highly critical of all the years before now, as though, it was a, as though this country were something like the Soviet Union before then. And they're forgetting things like uh, that case, which was brought so soon in uh, where civil society was brought to New South Wales with the settlement. And you've been in the media very much uh, recently, and that's been because the Prime Minister has uh, been arguing that uh, what you should do if you have fears about the voice being uh, really intruding into all forms of government, all you've got to do is read the second reading speech of the Attorney General, where all the limitations you want can be found in what the Attorney General said. I think you have reservations on that point, do you not? Uh, res reservations is a very charitable way of describing <laughs> what people have. I think it's, it's uh, 
laughable. There's no other way of describing it. Um, if you go and have, well, point number one, there are no uh, limitations in the Attorney General's speech. Um, he, he gave a couple of examples of uh, matters that uh, could be included in the jurisdiction of the voice, but he, it was portrayed in Parliament as some form of limitation that uh, uh, the voice would be limited to, its jurisdiction would be limited to these uh, examples. It's not. If you go and have a look, it's, it's just two examples of a broad jurisdiction. But that's, that's not the killer point. The killer point is this. Uh, judges, um, under the, um, the Acts Interpretation Act, are entitled to have a look at um, extrinsic material, such as second reading speeches, uh, but not to uh, take account of the intention of a particular politician, the subjective intention of a particular politician. They, they look at speeches um, such as this, if the meaning of a, of a, of a statute is obscure or hard to understand, they need to go and have a look at the circumstances that gave rise to a statute. But there's a, there's a, that applies to statutes. There's another point that makes it even more laughable, and that this is that the High Court itself uh, in 1988 uh, made it very clear when it was referring to, uh, in the Colin Whitfield case, it was referring to Section 92, uh, trade, commerce and intercourse shall be absolutely free. This is where they made some big changes to that. They made it clear that, uh, yes, from now on, this is a unanimous decision. We will be able to have a look at the, uh, the Federation debates, but not to determine the subjective intention of the founders. This is the people who drafted the Constitution. They're not interested in the, uh, the subject, what, what is viewed as the subjective intention. What they're interested in is the objective meaning of the words of the Constitution itself. So they'll look at the Federation debates to, to determine what a, a particular word meant at the time. Words change their meaning over, over time. Or to determine the circumstances that gave rise to the debate over Section 92. But the, the intention, if it was illegitimate for the High Court to look at the intention of the founding fathers, they will definitely not look at the intention of uh, Mark Dreyfus uh, in his second reading speech when he introduced the legislation for the voice. That, that's not how it works. So it's flawed. That whole argument is flawed on multiple grounds. In the United States, there's a school of thought and uh, it reaches into the Supreme Court where they say words mean what they originally meant in the Constitution. They, these are originalists. And they say the, yeah. the, meaning of a, the meaning of a word is as at the time. Uh, strangely, there doesn't seem to be anything like that in our High Court. And I remember that in the case concerning the Australian Capital Territory, Canberra, over the, mm. over, over the same-sex marriage when Canberra tried to introduce it themselves. And they, they rejected any proposition that marriage meant in the Constitution meant what it meant at the time uh, the country federated. And uh, the, the people at that time were well aware there were different forms of marriage. They were well aware, for example, that polygamy existed in parts of the empire. 
Uh, they, mm. they knew that, and I think the general view would have been that marriage was between a man and a woman for life with the prospect that there could be a dissolution by way of divorce or annulment. Uh, I think that was the view. Mm. But the High Court just swept that out and said that the meaning can change, which I, I found surprising. Yes, look, uh, I find it surprising as well. Um, it's a, a, originalism is an attractive idea on one level, but if you think about it, um, in, in the Cole and Whitfield example, how do you find the original intention of uh, those who drafted the Constitution, or in this case, um, in the case of The Voice, how do you find the original intention of those who... Uh, not drafted it, but the, the entire community will vote on this. And let's assume it gets up. What was the original, how do you go about and find the original intention? It's very, very difficult to, to see how that exercise in uh, finding with certainty the intention of the drafters of a, of a constitutional provision. It's, it's very difficult. So that said, I think the, um, I find myself... Uh, almost unwillingly uh, coming to the view that the uh, the court's approach, uh, an objective reading of the words of the of the document, is really the the only way you can interpret this, I, I think. And objective, it means what the court says it means. So the objective meaning of the of the document is what the court says it means. So it's it's a very complex area of discussion. Wasn't that uh, though the way that uh, Isaac Isaacs and those uh, those in the engineers case, which Menzies argued, I remember, I don't remember personally, in 1921, that uh, this this was then used to increase the power of uh, mm. the federation over the states by arguing yes. this in in the, the yes. engineers case. Look, that, that's very true, and uh, I mean, there's a, a body of thought uh, that this this is uh, the beginning of all our problems. Uh, I'm not sure whether I'm uh, entirely committed to that, but the uh, the the reality is that the constitutional development of this country, for better or worse, has been towards greater and greater centralisation of power in. in um, in Canberra, in the federal uh, federal government. Uh, now, what does that mean? That means that uh, uh, the checks on government power uh, in the states have been reduced, which means uh, organisations like like ours, the Rule of Law Institute, uh, have more and more responsibility for uh, filling the gap, if you like, uh, in holding centres of power, particularly the Commonwealth. Uh, to account. Yes, well, we're going to see that, aren't we, with the uh, the voice referendum. Uh, when the leader of the opposition called on the Prime Minister to delay the referendum, uh, the Prime Minister said the call was uh, the call for delay was devoid of empathy, devoid of empathy, which I thought was a peculiar argument to a proposal that you delay. Uh, the referendum, as uh, Holtz did in uh, 1967. They, they abandoned uh, Menzies' 
Referendum Act. They didn't hold the referendum in time and they passed the act again, but in a different form. Mm. Look, the, the, the most notable um, thing about the, the, the current referendum campaign is that it's abandoned the what was previously the orthodox approach where there was a serious attempt to uh, explain uh, the position. There would usually... Uh, consider what happened with the Republic, uh, the Republic referendum. Uh, there was a uh, constitutional convention where uh, the issue was argued out. There were uh, uh, delegates from all, uh, not all, but a wide cross-section of society uh, thrashing out what sort of uh, idea this was, what it would be. Uh, eventually it went down, but that's not the point. The point is there was a serious attempt to examine what would be a, a very significant change to the Constitution. Now, if we can do it for something like the like the, the Republic push, it, it strikes me as very strange that there was no convention involving the general community for the voice, there was a, an invited gathering of Indigenous uh, leaders um, at Uluru, um, and that, uh, there were a series of other gatherings throughout the, uh, the country involving Indigenous people. But uh, the reality is that the Constitution is uh, owned by the entire community. It's not owned by one uh, subset of society, and I think it's it's very strange that there was no real attempt to take account of the views of the uh, broader community before the the wording, the draft wording of this proposed change was unveiled at the Gama Festival uh, last July. And I think that um, was a terrible way to start. If the object of the exercise is to persuade people to make a change to our fundamental law, the, the last thing you should do is simply present it and require people to sign onto it without any involvement. It is, after all, our constitution. It's, it's the entire community's constitution. So the procedure was the beginning of the problem. In uh, 2015, uh, an organisation of which I'm convener, Australians for Constitutional Monarchy was, uh, we invited the then Prime Minister, Tony Abbott, to deliver the Neville Bonner oration. Of the nine original subscribers to ACM, two were Indigenous. There was always a, a strong Indigenous interest in the organisation, probably the influence, I would think, perhaps of Michael Kirby, who was one of the subscribers. But we, we had this oration and at it, Tony Abbott called on uh, ACM, he, he, he said, as the fiercest defenders of the Constitution, to support Indigenous recognition in the Constitution. My job was to deliver the vote of thanks. I hadn't seen the text of his speech, but I could see the reaction in the room, and I also agreed with it. And I said that an important thing like constitutional recognition which has not been granted to any other people in the Constitution, uh, because it just refers to the people, uh, that if this were to be considered, the people should be brought in from the beginning. 
They shouldn't just mm -hmm. be given a, a referendum to say yes or no to. There should be, this is worthy of a constitutional convention. And I think even with this, the voice, which is a special new chapter in the constitution. We've never mm -hmm. had a chapter before and you can imagine the impact on the high court judges of having to interpret what is a new chapter, that would be very significant, I would think, for the judges. They, they would regard it as something very significant and very important, and they would have to give it a very full impact, I would think. But uh, uh, what uh, we proposed, this is Australia's a constitutional monarchy, we decided that we wouldn't do what so many other groups were doing, saying what our position was. I mean, we've got big mm. sport, we've got uh, big business even, but we've got the Australian Republican movement. They're all saying how their supporters should vote. They're all saying how the community should vote. We decided not to do that. We said, we just restrict ourselves to the process. And we thought, we put in a submission to the, to the last uh, inquiry, parliamentary inquiry, which they didn't even accept, which was just that it should mm. go to a convention. And I think that's the position that should be taken, that should really go to a convention. It is, the, the Prime Minister, I think, by his, the way he is approaching this, the secretive way, the attempt to conceal what is going on, the way that the yes vote is, the yes case is being weighted. For example, we're seeing so-called information advertisements, which look very much to me like yes case advertisements. All of this is going on, and I don't think the Australian people are going to go along with this, and the opinion polls are showing that uh, this thing is going to be uh, very unlikely to pass, and if that happens, then we're going to be attacked. Uh, there's going to be a lot of division in the country. It's going to be received very badly, and they're going to try and wire up similar protests in other countries. and. I think if it goes down, we'll be looked on badly. If it goes up, then I think we're going to find that the country will be possibly ungovernable. It's a disaster, I think, what is being proposed. Look, I, I agree. Um, I think whatever the outcome, it, the way the opinion polls are going now, it'll be an extremely close result. That's assuming that the, um, the yes case forced uh, the slide. The slide in support for yes has uh, gone from 64% to, or uh, in minority support now, just, just under 50%. So whatever happens, win or lose, the country will be divided. Um, if if uh, the yes case gets up, there'll be a degree of resentment. I think far from uh, uh, fostering the cause of reconciliation, I think this will uh, foster division and resentment. Uh, you can see it already, and this is uh, the, the contrast with 1967, where there was, uh, I think it was uh, over 90%, just over 90% support for uh, removing uh, restrictions in the, the constitution that prevented the federal government from legislating for, uh, for Indigenous people. Uh, I think the contrast now is just stark, and I think the procedure... Uh, as much as the substance of the proposed change uh, is responsible. The substance of the proposed change, when you look at it, um, from a rule of law perspective, it, it's just atrocious. It, it's a direct attack on the doctrine of 
um, equality before the law, equality of citizenship. Um, if one group of people, um, based on uh, race alone, is to be given uh, the ability to have additional influence over all law, uh, all administrative decisions, all public policy, uh, it, it makes a mockery of the the, the doctrine of uh, equality of citizenship. And if you you can't have uh, equality before the law unless you also have, if you think about it, equality before those who make the law and those who administer the law. It it just is a direct attack on that principle that um, that has been part of uh, this country's uh, uh, governing doctrines from the very beginning. Uh, so. Uh, I'm, I've got grave reservations about it, and it, it's too late now. Now that it's passed Parliament, it's really too late to make the changes that were necessary. If, if there, it, it's it should have happened in in the reverse order. There should have been discussion right at the very beginning at a convention about one whether there should be uh, two questions. Uh, constitutional recognition of Indigenous people, and two, whether the, we want to constitutionalise the race-based lobby group uh, in the Constitution. Um, that didn't happen, uh, and, and that's why it's uh, not completely, you couldn't say it's, it's doomed at the moment, but I would say that it's heading in that direction. Yes, and a convention would not be expensive. Because with modern means of communication, the number of plenary sessions that you would need to hold would be minimal. Most of the work would be done in committees, and most of that would be done as we're doing our work now. As we, this interview is being done, it will be done on the internet, and uh, it could be a very economical activity. We made the point in our submission that uh, delegates should be unpaid. I remember when we put that mm. to a federal government committee, this was in 2015. Uh, we put in a submission to that effect, and I remember a member of Parliament was, was outraged by the proposition that delegates would not be paid and spent all of his time debating that, which seemed to me to be ridiculous. But uh, we, we were also going to discuss today, were we not, uh, defamation law in the light of uh, the uh, Ben Robert Smith case. And uh, that, that, uh, that was a, an extraordinary case. I always, when I was practicing law and people came to me because they were outraged by something that had been said about them or written about them, I, was, I always warned people, I always warned clients that a defamation case will take over your life and it will be very expensive and you must think very carefully about this before you instruct me to instruct counsel to prepare a case in defamation. I think it is a very, it's a, it can be a very dangerous thing to do. And we've seen that historically. I would uh, often refer to the Wilde case, Oscar Wilde, whose career, yes. his life, his professional life was ruined, although he did write the ba that wonderful ballad of Reading Jail where he was in prison mm -hmm. later, it all, his whole life collapsed. He was the toast of London. And because Bosie Douglas encouraged him, pushed him into prosecuting this against his father, 
that uh, that led to a, a complete downfall, and we lost one of uh, one of our great uh, our great authors, one of our great writers, one of the wittiest, was lost to the English-speaking world as a result of that. Mm, look, the similarities are, are stark. It, it was apparent to me as, as soon as the decision came down that uh, the Oscar Wilde case uh, was clearly relevant. Uh, nobody forced Ben Robert Smith to, to sue the media. Um, in fact, in retrospect, if you look at what what's happening with the special investigator uh, into the conduct of the armed forces in Afghanistan, uh, he would have been better advised to sit on his hands and, and wait to see if there was going to be a criminal prosecution. Uh, he was clearly infuriated by the uh, what had been written about him, which effectively accused him of murder. And uh, he had the backing of uh, Kerry Stokes, um, and so he sued for the problem is the, the different uh, standard of proof uh, in the, the civil courts of which defamation, that's where defamation is argued. The, uh, the standard of proof is the civil standard uh, on the balance of probabilities. In the criminal courts, um, it's beyond reasonable doubt, a much, much more onerous task in, in proving guilt. Uh, one of the things I found really unsatisfactory and slightly annoying was when this decision came down, um, uh, Robert Smith was uh, widely described as a murderer. Um, and if, but if you look at the what the case was all about, it, the, it wasn't a murder trial. He was not on trial. Um, the, the media uh, had the burden of defending their assertion uh, that he was a murderer. And they used the defence of substantial truth. And they succeeded in their defence. Now, that, that doesn't say that Ben Robert Smith is a murderer. Uh, uh, for this reason, if down the track uh, criminal charges are laid against, or more criminal charges are laid, I think somebody, some soldier has already been, been charged. But if he were to be charged over uh, what his conduct, his alleged conduct, in Afghanistan, there's every every possibility that he might be acquitted, in which case um, it would be utterly wrong to describe him as a murderer, which raises the question about whether it is uh, currently defamatory to actually describe Ben Robert Smith as a murderer. Uh, I think it's accurate to say that the, the media successfully defended imputation I think, you're, I I think, think you're correct. It's a, it's a big leap to then say that, therefore, he is a murderer. You've just got to look at exactly what happened in the court and keep in mind it was a, a civil court um, and not a criminal court, and a criminal court where those on trial have uh, all sorts of procedural safeguards and benefits uh, and almost certainly, uh, if that did happen, he would take advantage of those. And uh, we know that in <coughs> criminal matters, you have to prove beyond reasonable doubt. And in civil matters, it's on the balance of probabilities. But isn't there another principle? It's not a third standard, but don't they say in civil cases under the Brigginshaw 
principle, which had to do with adultery, if I recall correctly, a divorce case involving adultery. If the if what is being if the defamation is about something so serious, and what could be more serious than killing people? If the defamation is more yeah. serious, then that has to be taken into account in determining whether there is sufficient evidence to support that. Yes, that's that's very true. And I've, I've had a quick, I wouldn't say I've thoroughly read the 500-page judgment in this case, but uh, the, the Brigginshaw standard was used, um, which is, how would I describe it? It's sort of uh, halfway between uh, the pure balance of uh, probabilities and the, the criminal standards. I think the, the court needs to be uh, comfortably persuaded, I think it's the term, or words for that effect. Uh, so it's more than simply balancing um, the two. It's still the civil standard, but it's mm. a higher higher approach than yes. the courts take. I made some notes. The seriousness of an allegation made, the inherent unlikelihood of an occurrence of a given description, or the gravity of the uh, offences flowing from a partial finding are considerable, which must affect the answer whether the issue has been proved the re to the reasonable satisfaction of the tribunal. Heavy words yeah. against uh, any tribunal making that sort of decision. Having regard to the seriousness, what is more serious than uh, than uh, the, the allegation that he had uh, killed people without justification? Yeah, I can't think of another. Um, it, it would have to be probably the most serious civil case, civil argument that you could imagine. A few years ago, there was a, a case brought against uh, three or four soldiers. Uh, what... what uh, it was brought by the Director of Military Prosecutions. The, the Parliament decided to centralise military prosecutions instead of uh, decentralising them to the, the local command. That was the, the general idea, which prevailed during the times at which this country has been at war. And they centralised it in the Director of Military Prosecutions. She, sitting in the air-conditioned office in Canberra, went over the reactions of four soldiers who were fired upon. They were, in Afghanistan, they were fired upon. What did they do? They did what a soldier would do, they returned fire. It so happened that the people who were, the Taliban who were firing them, were, they were in a civilian area and other civilians with them were killed as a result of those bullets being fired. And uh, the DMP, she took the decision that uh, they shouldn't have done that. What on earth they should have done in those circumstances? I don't know. Sensibly, sensibly, the case, when the case was first heard, the judge or the magistrate, or I think he was a judge, the military judge hearing the case, decided that there, there wasn't even a prima facie case against the soldiers and yes. dismissed it immediately. But this is the danger, is it not, of trying to look at what happens in the heat of war from uh, air-conditioned offices, air-conditioned uh, courts and so on in Australia. Yes, I know. It's, it's, it's it leaves a very bad taste in your mouth. Uh, I mean, this country sends people to war zones um, and the purpose of uh, going there is to attack and kill uh, the enemy. Uh, I, I think it is ludicrous to hold... Um, the armed forces to uh, standards set uh, in 
as you said, in the comfort of uh, uh, tribunal rooms uh, back in this country. Uh, that said, I think there's an even bigger problem and that with um, the armed forces. I was, I was very uneasy about the fact that we had a, uh, an, an administrative inquiry uh, that uh, made public findings um, about uh, the SAS and the conduct in Afghanistan. Uh, and the, the, the head of the armed forces, on the strength of that administrative report, then apologised to the people of Afghanistan. This is before anybody had been charged. Mm. Nobody had been convicted. No pleas taken. It's, it's a very worrying trend when uh, uh, people who should know better uh, treat administrative inquiries uh, at, as conclusive. We see this far too often, and we've seen it in... Uh, it's, it's, it's an outgrowth of the, the emergence of anti-corruption commissions uh, with their, their very well-resourced public relations arms who provide terrific copy for the media. And the media, uh, you'll be surprised to, to hear, uh, uh, actually uh, is grateful for this, um, grateful for, for lots of headlines. And as a result, the findings of these commissions of inquiry, and it's not just anti-corruption commissions, you see it with uh, royal commissions and all sorts of commissions of inquiry, they're treated as holy writ. Uh, people who engage in, according to a tribunal, uh, uh, in wrongdoing um, are pilloried in, in, in the, the eye of the public before anything has been argued out in court. I think it's, it's, it's really worrying. It's, it's, it's very worrying. And, and we, we saw this quite recently with the, um, uh, the Lawyer X scandal in uh, Victoria, where a, uh, a barrister was uh, uh, a paid or an informant, I'm not sure whether she was actually paid, an informant for the police and was informing against her clients. Um, uh, there was a Royal Commission, findings were made, and just this week, the, uh, the DPP in Victoria, uh, Kerry Judd, uh, was severely criticised by uh, the special investigator, uh, subsequently appointed after the World Commission, because the, uh, the, the DPP, fulfilling her duty, uh, said, well, look, this is fine, but um, there's not sufficient evidence here. There needs to be evidence of a standard uh, admissible in court, and witnesses uh, should provide witness statements. And the material... Um, uh, before the the, uh, the DPP uh, was lacking in that regard, uh, the investigator, who happened to be a former High Court judge, um, uh, was very critical of the DPP. Um, and there was outrage uh, in the media because the DPP had uh, failed, apparently, in her duty. I, I hold the other view. I, I think the DPP did exactly the right thing. Mm. Um, if to punish people... If the state is going to impose penalties on people and punish them, the, the evidence for their wrongdoing must be uh, to the criminal standard and beyond reasonable doubt. Inquiries are terrific. They, they uncover information and uh, information that would not otherwise come to light. And in the lawyer scandal, uh, I can see an argument for a Royal Commission. 
But it's a mistake to think that just because something came to light in the Royal Commission, therefore there should be criminal penalties. It doesn't work like that. The courts don't automatically uh, follow along meekly in the wake of a, a commission of inquiry. I agree with you. The presumption of innocence is so important. What I find astounding is that people who should know better, a prime minister and a leader of the opposition, for example, in relation to the report in Afghanistan, we had the prime minister saying there are brutal truths in this document. Yes. And, we, and he then, and uh, I think the opposition took the same line, apologised to Miss Brittany Higgins before her case had gone to trial, apologised for the terrible things that had happened. How did the Prime Minister know yes. that terrible things had happened? We only know this if it is found by a jury. We, we don't know what's really happened. Uh, the, the media are very careful to say alleged, and uh, he, should have, he should have behaved like every journalist tends to and say alleged. I, rem I remember being told uh, in India that uh, they, he, an editor was training his journalist. She said, you've got to say alleged. So he wrote this piece of uh, uh, this report, which... Uh, which appeared in the Indian newspaper. They didn't notice it when they were doing that. Well, it said the, the Minister of Justice and his alleged wife opened the conference. <laughs> you thought you have to say alleged for all things, which of course it would be, I should imagine, highly defamatory. But there's one thing I wanted to ask you about. In America, in the United States, under the Bill of Rights, under which uh, those are the, those conditions on which they would never have had a federation but for the adoption of those amendments to the Constitution, which are called the Bill of Rights. There's a provision there that you must have juries in criminal yes. and civil cases. And they saw the great advantage of the juries during the time when the British were stepping up, stepping up pressure on the colonies and trying to make them more obedient. And the, they, they would charge, the British authorities, the royal authorities would charge somebody with an offence and the jury would very sensibly let them go. I, I, a friend of mine who was on a jury told me uh, that they thought that the accused had actually been involved in drug running, but they also thought that the, uh, that the Crown had not proved the case beyond reasonable doubt they knew, they shouldn't have known, but they knew there'd been two trials before which had, uh, which had uh, gone astray. And uh, they knew that he'd been in jail for two or three years. They thought he'd had enough and they thought the Crown hadn't proved the case. So they were being very practical. This is, but of course, you have to have somebody, a few people on the jury who take a lead because he also said to mm. me, there were people on the jury who seemed to not even know where they were, but, uh, uh, when some people took a took a lead on the jury, the juries are good things. Do you think we should have juries in divorce, in uh, defamation cases? Almost said divorce cases, <laughs> defamation cases. Look, uh, I think it can be. Uh, there was no jury in Ben Robert Smith, um, and given the fact that uh, it was a massive case with. Um, uh, conflicting evidence that uh, went for a, a vast amount of time. I think in some cases, some very long, very complex cases, uh, it, it would be beyond a, a jury to wrap, wrap their head around it. Uh, uh, juries, I agree, uh, can be a good thing, but 
But I think also uh, I'm attracted to the structure that is in place in New South Wales where uh, judges, the judiciary uh, has discretion to dispense with the jury. They don't do it a lot. But they they do it in in in, in the uh, the Abid McDonald matter, for example. Uh, it received saturation coverage for almost a decade. This is before charges were laid. This came out of the New South Wales Anti-Corruption uh, Commission. As a result, there was uh, pre-judgment of guilt. Uh, it would have been almost impossible to find uh, a. a Twelve people in New South Wales who had not been exposed to uh, the the, uh, the adverse prejudicial publicity about these fellows, and uh, the judge uh, in that case, quite sensibly, in my view, dispensed with the jury. Um, was well, that done on uh, yeah. the application of one party? Yes, it was, uh, uh, and it was supposed. The accused has to agree, by, does he not? Uh, yes, it, yes, it was done on behalf of the accused. The accused mm. um, uh, sought to dispense with the jury. Uh, my recollection is that the prosecution opposed that, and uh, I'm just trying to think of the judge's name. I, I forget it. Um, uh, she reluctantly, very reluctantly, went along with it, uh, and she really had very little choice because the uh, and I'll name the newspaper, the Sydney Morning Herald, uh, uh, published an extract of a, of a book uh, about these people uh, just a week or two before the, um, the trial was due to start. Uh, the judge then, Elizabeth Gordon, that, that was the judge, she delayed, put a stay in place for about six months and uh, after that she eventually came back and didn't quite throw her hands up in the air uh, but uh, ordered a judge alone trial, which is a, a sensible approach. It gives the judiciary flexibility in those cases where it would be unjust, if you like, too risky to take it to a jury. Uh, the, the, another case that should have been judge alone is the Brittany Higgins, uh, Bruce Lerman trial in the ACT. But the uh, I was writing about this um, long before... Uh, uh, Mr Lerman was even charged, pointing out that the the ACT uh, government, the Greens Labor government in the ACT, would be well advised to change the law because the, the law that was in place and still is in place in the ACT means that this that sort of uh, matter had to be held, uh, tried before a jury, unlike in New South Wales where the judge has discretion. If it was tried before a judge alone, if the Lerman case had been before a judge alone, uh, there would have been no juror misconduct. The original trial would have gone to conclusion. We would have had an outcome. Whereas at the moment, uh, we'll, this, this story saga will never be formally resolved because we now know that the DPP and the ACT, Mr Drumgold, uh, decided not to uh, retry uh, Mr Lerman after the, their first trial was aborted due to juror misconduct. Um, so there are advantages in judge alone trials, but I agree with you. I think the, the right to trial by jury in, in appropriate cases 
is a right that uh, people should not be lightly deprived of. Yes. In the Pell case, uh, where the High Court found that uh, he, he should be released, uh, but in the Court of Appeal, the, the, the immediate lower court, the Court of Appeal in Victoria, the, the majority, two judges seem to, be, seem to be saying, believe the victim, and only one judge was saying, there is a presumption of innocence and you have to prove beyond reasonable doubt. So you had two judges, I thought, doing something very strange in criminal matters and saying, believe the victim, which I thought was a, effectively the chant, which uh, was the big thing in the United States a few years ago. Now, in the Marsden case, getting back to defamation, John Marsden was, was uh, uh, it was suggested that he had engaged in underage sex and he sued Channel 7, won a lot of money. They appealed and they settled uh, the amount. He, he clearly got a lot of money. Uh, he, he, he was uh, before a jury and the jury found in his favour. But then, because in Australia, unlike America, in Australia the juries don't also award damages, which could be done very quickly. And juries, juries are very efficient in that they make a decision quite quickly. And if they, and the, as in the United States, they also award the verdict, they make up the damages, which is quite often changed on appeal, but they do it. It's done very quickly because juries have to decide quickly. They can't, uh, and they also don't give their reasons. But in the Marsden case, which I think was 2001, if I'm right, not only did he go before the jury, present his case, then there was another, another case before a judge, and it went for 214 days to determine the amount of damages. So it, he really, the whole matter was reheard, and that, that is madness to have a, not, I'm not criticising the judge, it is madness to have a system where you have one case before the, before the jury, then another case before the judge, and it goes 214 days. He said it ruined his life. Yeah. He, he got a lot of money, it ruined his life. He, uh, he died of cancer, and I, uh, I have no doubt that that was exacerbated by his experience during that criminal trial. Of course, not criminal yeah, trial, during that trial. I think lit litigation, um, uh, I've spoken, I've, I've passed on your advice, actually, and when people ask me, uh, I need to sue somebody, something terrible has been said about me, I, I, my advice is to have a, a stiff drink and walk around the block um, and think about it very, very seriously because it will drive... Uh, I have seen it drive people crazy. Yes. Uh, they get completely fixated about it. Yes, it becomes... It, it, it's all of your life if you do, do that. So yeah. I think it's a mistake. Unfortunately, the time has caught up with us. Before we go, may I suggest that everybody looks up your your advice it was in the Australian concerning ICAC because it relates to all of these integrity commissions. Your latest piece on ICAC was absolutely superb. I cannot understand why the Liberal Party was so silly to do what they did in that case, and you set it out very well. The Liberal Party behaved stupidly in that case, mm. and and they, all the members of the Liberal, I think all of them, there may have been dissenters, but they all went along with a really stupid decision in ICAC, which then affected their subsequent leader, Ms. Berejiklian, and a really silly 
silly decision of yeah. the Liberal Party. But it's well worth reading that, and it's very easy to find in The Australian. You might have to go behind the paywall. But you also publish your opinions in the Rule of Law Institute, don't you? That's right. So yes, people, can find that, people can find that in the yep. Rule of Law, which is, what is the uh, Rule of Law dot Rule org? Rule of Law Institute of Australia. Right. Google it and you'll find it. Very good. Well, once again, I must thank you very much. You've been very generous with your time, Chris, and uh, I think it's uh, been very effective and people should follow the Rule of Law Institute because they will learn something about a fundamental principle in Australia. Thank you so much. Quite okay. I'm David Flint. This is Save the Nation on ADH-TV. Until next time.